Hello and welcome back to Parallel Passion. First off, I'd like to sincerely thank everyone who continues to support the show on Patreon. You're the best. If you wish to join these awesome people, go to patreon.com slash or follow the link in the show notes. Thank you so much. Today I'm joined by John Krepetsi. When I was introduced to him, I went, wow, this guy does a lot of things. Then I started researching him and my oh my, there were so many topics I didn't even know where or how to start. It's absolutely amazing. I don't want to waste any more time in the intro, let's go straight to the interview. Hi John, welcome to Parallel Passion. Hey, thank you for having me. And and before we even start, like also thank you for, for doing this podcast in general. Um, I think it's really important to highlight the other things that people do aside from technology. Well, thanks. Yeah, that was uh, sort of the idea when, when I started it. Uh, uh, do, you, do you want this to stay in or was it just like uh, a side comment? Whatever you want. I'm just, I'm just here talking. <laughs> okay. Uh, why don't we start by you um, telling us who, who you are and what do you do? Sure. So I'm a, I guess, primarily Ruby developer, but I consider myself more of a generalist. I've been developing in Ruby uh, for probably nine years now. I've worked at companies like Patch. I've worked at Square. I worked at Tumblr. Uh, and now I work at GitHub. I spend a lot of time doing open source Software, mostly in Ruby also, a little bit of JavaScript. Um, and, oh, I <laughs> I also, I live in central New Jersey. I have a, a family. I have four kids and a wife. Um, and I have a lot of interests. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to come to that. You've been recommended to me by Phil, uh, a guest from two episodes ago. And uh, when when he started listing stuff, I was like, "Oh, that that's a lot." But then then I asked you, and you started listing even more. And then now only here I have like a full list. I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like to keep busy. <laughs> yeah, uh, but one thing that really um, uh, like sur- well surprised me that uh, I find interesting is that your nickname pretty much everywhere is C John Run. Mm-hmm. Um, did you did you run as well, or is this just something that like? C John Run is kind of a, uh, it's kind of a joke because so th- the reason that it's called C John Run is because I was in a band when I was younger. Uh, the name of the band was C John Run, and then oh. that would lead you to wonder like why was the band called C John Run? <laughs> uh, so the band was called C John Run because I am just so terrible at running. I'm like the worst <laughs> runner in the world. I kind of I do this thing where my legs go like out to the side a little bit while I run. <laughs> it looks ridiculous. Uh, so the people that I had started this band with. Uh, thought that was funny and uh, you know jokes on them because here we are 20 years later and uh, it's going pretty well <laughs> did, did you have like visuals when you were playing like on uh, behind you just playing y- y- like recording of you running <laughs> there there was actually at one point an animated uh, <laughs> version of me that would like kind of do this ridiculous run uh, and I was on all like it was a, a punk band in uh you know, in the late nineties. So I guess mm. almost 20 years ago and, uh, early two thousands. And we, um, on all the signs, you just imagine like a punk poster, there's like this ridiculous artwork. And there was always this weird stick figure of me, <laughs> uh, on all the signs. So then I chose that as my aim username, uh, if everyone remembers aim <laughs> and then it just kind of stuck everywhere after that. I figured if I have it in a bunch of places, I may as well keep it. Yeah. And then actually when I started my, uh, I started a blog and I thought, well, C. John Run, everyone always asks me about running. Let me uh, name the blog something different because there's actually another person out in the world called C. John Run. <laughs> uh, and it's it's this guy that uh, he runs across the country uh, with his child who's in a wheelchair and he does these like super long distance runs and it's it's amazing and people should definitely check him out uh, so I chose this other name it was called C. John Code <laughs> and that's my website is the only place where I don't have C. John Run yeah but still I think if you google for C. John Run it's it's you that comes up yeah, uh, yeah. mostly <laughs> But since you mentioned bands, uh, like, um, wh- what did you what did you play? So I'm a I'm a drummer. Oh. Uh, when I was young, and we re- you had to choose instruments in, in America. You choose instruments in the fourth grade, and you have to uh, pick something. Like uh, I, you can choose a snare drum, or you can choose a saxophone or a trombone. It's all kind of these basic brass and woodwind instruments. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to choose the drums, but my parents talked me out of it because it's too loud. <laughs> so I chose the trombone, uh, which is also an amazing instrument. 
and was uh, fun to play. But then when I got a little bit older, uh, every year for Christmas, I would say, I want, I want drums, I want drums. And then eventually uh, my father got me uh, a set of drums. And then ever since then, I, I have really liked playing them. Do you still, do you still play them? Do you, are you still in any band or anything like that? Do you jam? Like- yeah, so my, my most recent like formal band and meaning like bands that went and played out at shows was maybe like five years ago. But then since then I've had uh, jam bands and uh, we get together every once in a while in the city, uh, New York city and just play for a couple hours to, to get it out. I also have my drum set up in my basement. So I, I get down there sometimes too. Mm. I've recently been thinking about changing my drums out for uh, V drums, which are electronic drums. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the technology there is actually pretty good. So they feel mostly like a real drum. They actually have even better bounce in a lot of cases than a drum set that is kept by someone that doesn't really have time to keep it. Oh, really? Like physically as well? Yeah. Yep. Oh. I, I thought that, yeah, like sound reproduction now is probably like on the same level, but I thought that still like it feels like not as good. The, uh, the bounce is typically even better than a regular drum set hmm. uh, on the, on modern V drums. Interesting. And do you play punk still or like what kind of genre are you, are you in? Yeah, I, I do punk a little bit. I guess I'm any kind of drummer that's been drumming for a long time probably gets into funk also a little bit. So I spend most of my time playing stuff like that or maybe like punk funk fusion. Hmm. I, I wish I had more time for it, but yeah well yes. but with with everything yeah. <laughs> else that you got going on it's, it's it's kind of hard i imagine i still i still think about like getting a group of people together and and maybe trying to start something we'll see i think once you once you are in a band uh and you've like maybe it's not dissimilar from like speaking at conferences once you are uh once you feel this like power of the crowd and everything like it's sort of addictive perhaps yep definitely true And um, like speaking of, do do you still uh, present at conferences? I do. I do. I, I've started again recently. I've started speaking at a few Go conferences. Oh. Um, I've also been uh, setting up to speak at a few Ruby conferences in the next couple of months. So hopefully, going to get back into it. I had at one point spoke at a lot of conferences. I had spent a lot of my time uh, going around speaking, and then I went. Uh, I'm going to really just bare my soul here on the podcast. I went to, uh, I spoke at RailsConf and mm. it just did, like, I, I think I was not at a speaking point in my life then to be ready for RailsConf. Uh, I had been speaking at these conferences and kind of, I, I think when you speak at conferences, just like a lot of other things in life, you're slowly kind of boosting your your confidence in yourself as a speaker. Yeah. And I had been doing, you know, at first you do meetups and then you do these small conferences. And then I was doing these medium sized conferences. So I was out in my favorite one was uh, Ruby on Ales, which was in Bend, Oregon, mm -hmm. like really good time. And I was getting kind of involved in this scene. And then I took a jump from something like one of those medium sized conferences all the way up to like the big room yeah. at RailsConf. Mm -hmm. And it was just like too much of a jump to make mm -hmm. it once. So I, Uh, stopped speaking for a few years, and then I've I've been speaking, but not uh, at large conferences. Like, was it terrifying, or what was the uh, what was the reason that you decided that like, whoa, this is this is too much? I think yeah, it's partially terrifying. You get in front of a group that large, and you start kind of speaking quicker, or you start maybe not saying the things that you wanted to say, or skipping pieces. And I think that my kind of my notes preparation, my slide preparation, just everything was was not what it needed to be to be on that stage. And I think a lot of people get these speaking spots. And you, when I go to conferences, I see other people do the same thing. So I know that I shouldn't feel too terrible about this. Oh, yeah. Because I, I go to conferences and I see people that are obviously not prepared or they, they go to speak for a 45-minute slot in the end. It was also a 45-minute slot, which is It's a lot, way yeah. too long. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I see people at conferences go and they... Uh, are done in 20 minutes or something and it's obvious that they <laughs> don't me. feel right about it yeah <laughs> yeah like to me that happened as well like uh, one time exactly the same like i was just rushing through like crazy and i had that 45 minute talk and i was done in like 25 minutes and i was like uh questions yeah which is not great <laughs> and and if, and for someone i'm sure like you've you thought about it afterward like for someone that obviously wants to be to be good at speaking and wants to try to be good at all the things that they do Uh, something like that can really take kind of a hit on your confidence as a speaker. Yeah, yeah. So I've thought a lot about that. And I mean, I'm headed back in that direction. I do like one of my goals is to maybe speak at RailsConf or RubyConf again. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but it's going to uh, just, if you see me on the speaker list for RailsConf or RubyConf, know that I'm ready and it's going to be awesome. <laughs> How much time does it usually take you to to prepare? How do you, like, what's your typical preparation look like? I would say, like, back then, probably a few days and then I would run it past a few people. These days, like, by the time that I, for example, I gave a talk recently at Gotham Go, uh, you can look it up if you're interested. And for that conference, I prepared for for weeks of just like of of fine tuning these slides. I ran it past many many people, uh, many practice sessions. I recorded myself doing practice sessions. I played them back. Like I, I went so much more intense. I actually built, and we can talk about this too. But I built a like a physical device that was there on the stage with me because it was like a hardware hacking thing. And hardware hacking is actually very similar to uh, to live coding in that like you probably shouldn't do it at a conference <laughs> because it's going to not work. Uh, but luckily, uh, nothing went wrong this time. Yeah, no, we, we should talk about it. Like, what was it? What was the hardware thing? So the device at that conference was a PVC marimba. So it is a, um, it's eight notes of of pvc and the way that this kind of connects back to the music thing which is nice (laughs) the pvc um are different lengths so that when you hit on the end of a piece of pvc a tone comes out the other end right so yeah yeah. then what i did is i mounted these strikers that sit underneath each of the pieces of pvc and then i hooked it up to a raspberry pi and made it so that the pvc marimba could play songs so the first song it plays is like this old man oh wow and then it then it plays like a two hand song on the on the pvc marimba that's pretty cool yeah so i so i brought that thing physically to new york and the people at the hotel were like what is this guy <laughs> doing like you can't have that here I like brought it i asked them to sell send the bellhop down to my car uh, and he just looked at it and he's like, I can only move suitcases. <laughs> and it's like, okay, I guess like I'm going to pick this thing up myself. Yeah, and also um, probably looks like an improvised bump or something. Oh, like that. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you see the see the pictures of it, look them up. It, it's like there are just wires all over the front of this thing. It, I would not have <laughs> let me up into the hotel room. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Uh, but but uh, how did, uh, like in the detail, how did, it work like how did you store the notes what uh, yeah so what what did you use the raspberry pi had some custom code on it that turns uh in i wanted it to be simple for the conference so the raspberry pi takes a go program that has a string of characters Mm -hmm. and the string of characters are like c d e f something like that you know the list of notes and then it does string parsing and then has a map of what each of those notes is to which striker it should be. Right, okay. And the strikers are pretty interesting too because they're actually, they are, I needed something that would move quickly in and out to be able to strike the bottom of the PVC tube. So what I ended up using was the inside of a car door lock. <laughs> I took eight of those and one of those is mounted under each PVC pipe. So when you want to strike a note, you essentially like lock and unlock the door super quick. <laughs> Uh, and it makes it it makes it a sound that's such a hackish way to do it how did you how did you come up with that <laughs> i just like i'm looking for the the motor the type of motor that that is it's called the linear actuator so it's a type of motor where there are two inputs and if you put uh power on one uh and no power on the other it spins in one direction and if you reverse it it spins in the other direction mm-hmm. so the raspberry pi has this thing called the gpio bus which you can hook up to a bunch of these and you're able to control you know up to i think there's 40 pins so you could control up to 20 but that's not actually true because you can only address like 32 you can control like 16 notes mm-hmm. with this before you have to go into something more complicated mm-hmm. and that's literally like wiring the motors directly into uh the raspberry pi gpio bus yeah but then uh, on the input level you you just have the letters you don't read uh, midi or anything like that right right exactly yeah, I always I thought about doing that next. I thought about there every time I do a project like this, I think about like what would the next step be. So there's a couple different ways that you could go. And I like to say to people like when you build something like this, there's there's two directions you can go. You can improve the engineering behind the thing, meaning like you can write better code to do more interesting things. In the case of the marimba, that might mean something like introducing the idea that notes can be muted by taking the pad and pushing it up against the tube to like make a muted version of the note. Or maybe there are different volumes because you can hit the note softer, you can hit it super hard, uh, things like that. Mm-hmm. Or you can go the other route if you're more interested in that route, which is to improve the workmanship 
of the piece. So maybe you want to make the marimba instead of looking like a bomb, it'll look <laughs> like a like an actual you know finished piece. Yeah. How did how did you even like in the first place uh, come up with that idea that that you want to build that? <laughs> This was the the second of two ideas that I had, and I kind of. Uh, a lot of times I'll tell people something as if the thing is going to exist and I'll gauge the reaction. So the, the first <laughs> idea was I wanted to make uh, spitting fountains that would be able to juggle water. So they would. Uh, so, so one of my dreams with the marimba is I would, I would like to, I have an idea for a, an art piece that I would like to build, but I think like I need, I need some money to do this. But the idea is that I want to build a, a, a series of three tubes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And instead of it just being an empty PVC tube, it's actually got water inside of it. And the tubes are made of glass instead of PVC. So then what you do is, let's say you want to play like Mary Had a Little Lamb. Obviously, you need more than three notes. So what you have is underneath it, you have a water pump and you're pumping in a level of water oh. that changes the note that you would get by hitting the top of the glass tube. But can you do it that fast? Well, you have this like water underneath where you can pump water in and out. So maybe you have four or five tubes but you can play an entire song because you're able to uh and then that's the code part of it is like you want to keep you want to set up a tube to play it's like the elevator problem you want to set up a tube to play a note that it's closest to right so you might instead of just choosing the next tube that's available choose a tube that is closer the one that's to the closer that yeah, yeah 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 <laughs> So oh, I, I've always wanted to do that. And then maybe uh, first, a lot of these projects, these, um, what I have in my head is the lobby of the Ace Hotel in New York. Just want to somehow get this in there. So if anyone's <laughs> listening from the Ace Hotel, uh, I would like to, to send you three glass tubes full of water. Oh, that's crazy. That's, uh, yeah. And, and right before this, I had uh, another project that I had talked about in the Go Talk is I had made, my, my daughter had... Um, had had an expert fair at school mm-hmm. and she's in third grade and this so this was the second grade expert fair and an expert fair is basically like a science fair but for elementary school students so they're supposed to create a report and create like a trifold board about a topic and we had just got back from Italy and my daughter chose the uh, the Leaning Tower of Pisa because we had we had gone to it in person mm-hmm. uh, The Leaning Tower of Pisa as her topic. And so she came back and she was like, everyone at school is making fun of me and they're calling it the Leaning Tower of Pizza. And I was like, <laughs> okay, like that's ridiculous. That's not even funny. Uh, and, and like you shouldn't be upset about that, but she was like pretty upset about it. So she said, maybe we could change topics or... Topics or toppings? Topics. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't resist, sorry. <laughs> Eventually she decides that Uh, we could fix the situation by building like a replica of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. So I'm thinking like, we're going to build this like foot tall thing out of paper and she's going to bring that in. Uh, so she goes to school the next day and she comes home and she says, I told everyone at school that we're going to build the Leaning Tower of Pisa and they said that we're not going to. And it turns out she had told them that the Leaning Tower of Pisa we would build would be as tall as me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so rather than tell her that she had to go back to school and tell them that they couldn't, uh, that there wouldn't be a leaning tower of Pisa. We ended up building, I guess mostly I ended up building, but with a little bit of help from my daughter and she was involved throughout the process. We ended up building a eight and a half foot tall leaning tower of Pisa replica out of wood. Wow. And the tower does not lean, but has a button at the base. And when you hit the button, it leans <laughs> to, to the lean of the real tower geometrically. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And it, and the, it, it has a Raspberry Pi inside of it. And I knew that kids were going to be playing with it. So I even added things like like debouncing for the button. So if <laughs> kids come up and they want to slam it 100 times, it's like, <laughs> no, it's not going to work. Like it's going to finish its, its arc and then it's going to go back. But uh, how do you um, balance uh, it? Because like I imagine that big of a wood thing is has quite a weight. So you have to have like a counterbalance or something. Yeah. There's a, so there's, there's a base underneath it mm-hmm. uh so the base is pretty heavy by itself and then on one side uh there's we we did like kind of faux grass at the ground because that's what the, at the bottom of the real tower mm-hmm. of course mm-hmm. you have to have the, the fake grass yeah um and the 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 tower actually leans imagine like a circle in the base the tower when it leans leans into the base so it never looks like the tower uh 
um, you don't see the part where it leans from the outside because it's leaning like into itself. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get it. Yeah. Um, and on one side, there's a hinge, a very strong hinge because the tower's about 150 pounds. And then on the other side, there's a 250 pound rated linear actuator again. Mm-hmm. It is mounted to the bottom of the case and it uh, is attached to the you know the left side of the tower <laughs> and it works like parents parents were there like taking pictures with it it's like like the typical uh, pictures against a leaning tower of pizza yeah yeah exactly <laughs> people were standing back and doing like the, the t- what's the typical like ice cream cone photo yeah with, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow that's cool and we painted it we painted it with like a, a faux stone paint we really overboard yeah Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I think uh, just the idea itself is overboard, but then, like, then you took it to the next level. <laughs> mm-hmm. How did you even start with, with um, let's say, woodworking? Or, like, what was the first thing that you thought that, like, um, a hardware product, maybe, maybe that's, uh, I don't even know how to call it, but s- something, like, in real life? Oh, yeah, like a like an object that I yeah. made, right? Yeah. So, when I was growing up, my grandfather had, uh, I guess, like, a small shop like a wood shop in his garage and i was raised primarily by uh with my grandparents like after school i would come home to my grandparents house mm-hmm. and uh he had that and he had a boat and so he's always working on something and always like thinking of little solutions so i think it, it started there uh but then it really didn't kind of kick in for me until later in life when i was building the first thing i built was it was a sandbox for your kids for my kids yeah right so not a, a perfect sandbox and this was maybe probably nine years ago mm-hmm. so this was my my first daughter uh was was born nine years ago so we built her this sandbox and you know you go from having no tools to having a circular saw right right, well. right? so that's a, that's the tool that you need to be able to rip the wood to be able to get the the sandbox in place but why did you say to yourself like oh i'm i'm not gonna buy it i'm gonna build it because I've read this terrible thing and I don't know if it's true, but I'm pretty sure it is <laughs> that if you have a sandbox that's open, that cats will find the sandbox oh. and go to the bathroom in the sandbox. I know that's, <laughs> that's not a very good podcast topic, but I mean, Aaron Patterson talked about that. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to build a sandbox that I had in my head that had these like benches inside of it and then had the ability to close the doors. So so you would essentially flap doors over it. So you get the circular saw, right? And you have the circular saw. Yeah. And then I always think like you have the circular saw. The circular saw literally is superpower because all of a sudden you have this like super long piece of wood and you want to cut that wood into half of like its width. And you can do that now because you have this machine that you can hold in your hands mm-hmm. um, and you can now do that. I mean, if you think about it, that's like there's a connection to computers there, which is that like, you collect a series of skills and each of those skills gives you some ability to do something you couldn't do before. And there's something really addictive about that. So w- the reason that it gets bigger and the reason for me that it got bigger is that you have this one superpower and then you're like, Okay, now I need to be able to round over the edge of this so that someone doesn't maybe hit their head on this and, you know, end up getting hurt. So then you say, okay, like now I need a superpower that I can round over the edge of things and make a nice edge consistently. So, of course, I could take some sandpaper and I could spend all of my life or I could go get a router <laughs> mm-hmm. that will will cut the edge of the wood. So you, you have this series of superpowers and then eventually, you know, it's nine years later and you have like a a whole bunch of machines that you <laughs> probably don't need, but each of them gives you something new. Yeah, I guess it's like a technology tree in some games where just like you, you get one thing and then it unlocks some other things and then you get that thing and it unlocks the other things and then you are able to build more and more things with, with that. Yeah, each of these each of these ways, uh, if you think about everyone that makes something chooses kind of their own direction and it's just like computers, right? It's just like computers. If you say to yourself, like, do I want to focus on back end? Do I want to focus on front end do i want to focus uh on being a generalist i have some things to say about about being a generalist too uh, <laughs> but this uh this thing is about um about choosing which way you want to go so for example in woodworking uh, a lot of woodworkers decide that the way that they want to go is to use hand tools or maybe a lot of woodworkers use power tools or maybe a lot of woodworkers use uh, uh there's a thing called pocket holes And like maybe woodworkers go in that direction because it can be easier to do that. Mm-hmm. Or maybe like it's really about like is is this woodworker or any type of maker focused on getting something done 
on making it look right, or on having the experience of making it. Those are really the three categories of making. Yeah, that is、uh, that is also similar to to software. Yeah, in in that way. Exactly. So sometimes you just want to try something new, and and you don't really care about the end result, like if it works or not. Like it's just it's like a hackathon, right? You just want to build something new from something you haven't used before. And that that's how you.、Uh, I think back to the kind of the original question is that that's how you end up with. The Leaning Tower of Pisa, or you end up with the、uh, the PVC marimba, is is you take kind of a, a an idea that for for most people would be this fleeting idea that you kind of just throw away, like oh it'd be cool, like maybe a PVC pipe. You're at a construction site and you hear it hit the ground and it makes a sound, right? And then you might、mm-hmm. think to yourself, like oh, like you could probably play a song with those. <laughs> and then you look at your kind of your list of superpowers and. Do they line up with my ability to make this thing, and do I have like the the time and energy to make it? And if the answer is yes, then you make it.、Mm. Yeah, that's that's what I think at least. And then about、uh, I think I teased the idea of talking about being a generalist for a bit. So I consider myself a, a software generalist,、uh, and a lot of people I think take generalist and want to turn it into like、um, like jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that doesn't have to be right. I think that you can. A generalist is not the type of person that is necessarily equally good at all the things, and maybe like shallowly good at all the things. But rather, the type of person that、uh, is willing to not find the end of their skill set because they're willing to, when they get to the end of it, expand and learn the things that they need to go further.、Mm-hmm. And not saying that everyone needs to be a generalist. There are definitely there there's. Uh, a place in the world for、um, for all types of of engineers, but I think like saying that a generalist is not maybe a master of、uh, backend engineering or something is is maybe overstepping the definition. Yeah, I, I mean you can you can still be a, a master, but be a generalist in a way, and and being in a way that like you know the tools, you know which tool is right for which tool, and even. Knowing where you need a specialist maybe is is a good skill to have. That's a very good point. Sometimes, like for example, Elasticsearch, I don't know it in detail. I know that I need it, and then where like we have a problem, there's someone who knows it more than we, and then we can find someone that, that does that because there are specialists in that like one narrow domain. But I don't want to spend my time、uh, going through that documentation and 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 getting and understanding that. Right. I have a.、Uh... I'm jumping to to a topic related to this.、Uh, I, I have in my garage. I have a、uh, a 1967 C10 pickup truck that I have been restoring. Okay, and it's just like this. It's it's that like there are some jobs that sure I could you know I could weld on the frame. I could do probably the the different pieces of this job that need to be done, or I could bring this to a professional because. Uh, this part is not the part that's interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, you have to pick your battles, right? Things that you like to do. Yep. And well, since you brought it up, like,、uh, how did <laughs> how did that、uh, how did that start? Like, did just like find a broken pickup truck, and you're like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna buy that and fix it. I had I had a, a car trouble at some point. I had a, a regular car, and I was always going to the store and like like to Home Depot or something and trying to pick up supplies for my next project and trying to fit it in the back of this like crappy Kia. That I had previously,、uh, and then one day the Kia broke down. So I said to myself, I would like to get something that, you know, that doesn't that that I can carry stuff around with. And I don't need something fancy, but I need something I can move m- materials with. So I went and looked online, and I found this、uh, this very old, so 1967.、Uh, it's a long bed C10. So that means it has an eight foot long bed in the back.、Mm-hmm. Uh, this thing is awesome. It, like it's so cool. <laughs> But it's also like it's broken to the point of、uh, like there are holes in the floor. Like when when you're driving down the road, you can see the the ground, and that's not good.、Uh, and it's not good because you know I have four kids, and I don't need to、uh, to like fall through the hole in the ground or whatever. <laughs> I don't even, however, however that would go wrong. I don't need that.、Um, so one day I decide that I'm going to do a, a brake repair, and I'm going to fix the hole in the ground. So I pull the truck. Into my garage,、uh, and I start taking off the brakes because it had drum brakes. And I'm like, I'm going to switch these to disc brakes, and I'm going to fix the hole in the ground. And then I'm going to be back on the road in this truck. And I even like, I didn't register it with a historic plate. I got normal plates because I was ready to drive this truck.、Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I drove it for for a bit. Everyone everywhere I pulled up would look at me like I was crazy. <laughs> so I take off the the brake, and um, when I take it off, I find the next problem. Right? I look and I look and I take off the brake, and I look at uh, you know where the cab is mounted to the frame, and it turns out like one of the bolts attaching the cab to the frame is like sheared in half. So then I say like, okay, that's not good. <laughs> it's like now I need to take the whole cab off. And that series of problems eventually got me down to like, you know, the engine is there and like the fenders are still on and the radiator is still there, but like mostly the car is taken apart. And uh, it's the typical yak shaving. Right? <laughs> yeah. And then, and then there's like the final stage of yak shaving where I'm like, you know what? I probably should just take all the parts off because like, I'm so close to having it all off. So what I ended up doing is what in, uh, I didn't know this term before, but in, in auto repair, uh, what I'm doing technically is called a resto mod, and it's technically a frame off resto mod, which means you take everything off the frame. So the, the car was brought all the way down to the point where there were zero bolts left on on the car. So mm-hmm. literally not an engine, nothing holding like there are no bolts holding the frame together. The only thing that are there are like are rivets. Um, so. Uh, then it got sent to like a place where it got sandblasted. This is a good example of like I could have brought it outside and probably like used an outside sandblaster and tried to do the powder coating of the frame myself. But then like you look at the facilities that people have to do this stuff. Like they literally pulled the truck in. Like I, I brought it there in a U-Haul and they brought it into their bay and they put on their like giant hazmat suits or whatever and sprayed the whole thing and got it done in like an hour. It would have taken me would have taken me months to do it. Yeah. So now I'm in the process of building the truck back up. Uh, so it has suspension now. It's about to have wheels. Uh, and it's just a process. But it's a process that I really kind of enjoy mm. going through. Are you reusing any of the parts that you took off or are you just buying everything new? So all of the body parts are being reused. Uh, but things like the suspension or even the engine are being upgraded. So uh, where where feasible, I've sold those parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I didn't need before. Uh, this is connected to the woodworking thing. This, uh, how I was saying that some people are really into hand tools and some people are into um, to power tools. Mm-hmm. For example, in 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 classic car restoration, there's also these two schools. One has the idea of restoring the truck exactly how it would have been off mm-hmm. the assembly mm-hmm. line floor, mm-hmm. and then one is the idea of what's called a resto mod, which is a restoration modification or restoration uh, modernization, right. which is to take the car and so, for example, this car did not have power steering or power braking, but like I want to drive the car, so <laughs> now it has power steering and power braking. And how difficult it is to find the parts to to do that? Like, or do you have to? Are, are there like a general parts that you can reuse for for this sort of thing? Luckily, around that era for the Chevy trucks, uh, a lot of Chevy cars and trucks share the same parts. Mm-hmm. So, for example, there's a, a car called the the Chevelle. The Chevelle uses a lot of the same parts as the C10. A lot of like the same suspension parts, a lot of the same measurements. I think like the frame measurements and dimensions are pretty similar. Uh, so you're able to find parts for the for these old trucks pretty readily. And every once in a while, you'll stumble upon a part that you cannot find. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that case, I've either had to have the part manufactured by by taking it and bringing it somewhere manufacture the part myself, which we could talk about that, uh, <laughs> or take the old part, clean it, and reuse it. All right. Let's talk about that. Uh, is it like 3D printing parts, or is it woodworking? How do you build the part? <laughs> I do have a 3D printer that I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty interested in, but I think I think 3D printing, for me, I know that a lot of people um, have very fancy 3D printers. I have a, a Prusa, and I don't think 3d printing for me is at the quality where i can i can kind of at least with the 3d printer i have is at the part uh, quality where i can make something that i'm willing to put on the truck mm-hmm. um i've used 3d printing for like small brackets or like pieces of refrigerator or something you know like things like that but to use it for something that i need to to trust my body with um seems like a line that i'm not willing to cross mm-hmm. so i mm-hmm. uh when i'm manufacturing parts i have a couple pieces of, of metal working equipment that helped me. I have a very old uh, metalworking lathe. So, a metalworking lathe. Uh, to, if everyone, I don't know if people know what a lathe is, but a lathe is a uh, a device that you can essentially attach some material into, and then it's it horizontally spins that thing pretty fast, and it spins it with 
I think the most important thing is that a normal motor, like a, a, a motor that you would find in any kind of industrial application, you can imagine putting your hand around that motor and slowing the motor down. So you could, you could essentially stop any electric motor of, of, of not in, intense power, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now a lathe, you can't because a lathe uses gearing to make it so that that thing is going to spin no matter what. Uh, you don't want to like wear loose clothing near a lathe because like it could, um, like once it grabs something, it spins it and it doesn't stop. So, so this one in particular is a 1945 Montgomery Ward metalworking lathe. And it just like it sounds can spin metal. So you can cut aluminum or steel in that. Wow. Um, and if you, uh, kind of get into it a little bit, uh, I have a, my wife's grandfather, who's a machinist, uh, at a power plant refers to the lathe as the king of tools, uh, because you can really use this lathe to do like pretty much anything. Yeah. That's the, that's the real superpower thing. Yeah. I mean, to be as good as he is with it, I, I would, it would be amazing to be that good with this thing. <laughs> uh, but lathes are very cool because, uh, unlike a woodworking lathe, which is largely based on the skill of the operator, uh, a metalworking lathe, uh, is, very controllable it has very tight parameters for itself Mm -hmm. so for example like you're not holding something that's touching the spinning piece there's like a carriage that rides back and forth that uh, holds a bit that touches the spinning piece right so you have to program it to to do you have to program it yeah right and in 1945 terms programming basically means like setting feed rate and then letting the machine kind of uh, turn a gear at a predetermined rate so that you get the right amount of uh, feed Mm. and then that plus a welder uh, you can pretty much <laughs> make anything you need. <laughs> Where do you get like a block of aluminum? Uh, so there's a place near me uh, that it, any kind of fabrication shop will do it. But there's a place near me called Joseph Fazio's and they have any kind of metal you could possibly want. <laughs> they have different thicknesses of steel, uh, angle iron, bar stock, anything you're, you're looking for. Yeah, that's crazy. Like I, yeah. <laughs> I, I knew that this must have existed, but I, 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 I was never like, hmm, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna manufacture something myself, like for one time use. Yeah, I mean, have you, have you looked into CNCs at all? No, not, not. At, I mean, I know they exist. There are just there's so many different ways you can go with all of this. Like people, I think, look at me and say, like, you have all the tools, you have all the capabilities, or whatever. But there are just so many, so many more things. There's milling machines, CNC, which is a computer-controlled router uh, that can cut custom shapes into a piece. Uh, there's things like um, electronic discharge machining <laughs> that we can get like parts super close to each other. And these are all interests of mine. But like, for example, like uh, one of those machines could cost, you know, like eighty thousand dollars. I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> Yeah, that's insane. I, I mean, even even this uh, that you have so far probably wasn't cheap for for the whole equipment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a, I have a, my the center of my wood shop is a, a saw stop three horsepower table saw, and so I don't know if you've heard of these, but they're the they're the table saw that can't cut your hand off. Oh yeah, I did. I saw I saw a YouTube video with the with the hot dog. <laughs> yeah. Actually, the CEO, I think, at one point made a video where he put his finger in. Oh. So if you if you like the hot dog video, uh, but it's pretty amazing and it's cool, like uh, to invest in a tool like that because uh, SawStop, for example, does not have um, like it's it's a tool that is safe for you, but it's also probably the best table saw that you can get. Oh, okay. You know, so this is the kind of thing where it's like if you're a programmer, you get a nice keyboard. If you're into making things, a table saw is really a good place to put your money because um, it, it is the center of pretty much every operation that involves wood. Did you make your own keyboard? I did not. <laughs> I did not. Um, I think I think that's cool. I think that uh, it's a, a cool interest people have. I do have like a super loud clickety-clackety keyboard. Uh, it's a Philco Magistouch, but... Uh, I don't get too into it. Mm, yeah, well, you know, with so many things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on top of all of this, I another thing is that I'm uh, I'm constantly wanting to learn new skills that I don't kind of know exist or get better with tools that maybe I don't have a lot of time to experiment with. Mm-hmm. So for, for a while, I used to um, I do a lot of work on my house, and we had this contractor that came by and was doing some work on our house, and. We're both out outside working on the house, kind of in different parts of the house at the same time. And I said to him, like, oh, I'd love to go out with you someday and, like, go 
you know, see what you do and maybe go on a job or something, uh, which is ridiculous because uh, maybe it's not ridiculous. I don't know. Anyway, so he was there and he's like, yeah, I mean, if you want to come out, just like meet me tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. at this deli. <laughs> and I was like, done. Like I'm there. <laughs> so I showed up uh, and this guy, he paid me uh, as $125 per day. Oh, wow. Yeah, to uh, <laughs> to go to go on these jobs with him. So I went on. Uh, I did a siding job one day. I did a couple of flooring jobs, uh, and it was always the same thing: kind of show up at seven a.m., work with this guy all day, uh, and then leave. And that's a really good opportunity. Obviously, the pay is is not probably what I I need. Yeah, probably GitHub play, pays better. I, I sure <laughs> <Yes>. hope so. <laughs> uh, but having this opportunity to follow this guy around and see like what he does and i think more importantly like what he doesn't do mm -hmm. uh meaning like he used to have this this phrase which i i i'm still torn on this and i don't know uh if it's good or bad but he used to have this phrase where he would say uh he'd get to like the part of a job uh invariably when you're opening up someone's floor or siding you will find parts of their house that are not the way that they're supposed to be yeah so for example you'll find like patches where old ducks came out that someone just kind of boarded up with plywood uh, so he would take down the siding and he would look at it and he would say, there's nothing we can do. That's, that's his phrase, nothing we can do. Uh, and at first I'm looking at it, I'm just saying like, well, of course there's something you can do. You can take the thing down and you can fix it. Uh, but that, I think, learning to like step back from problems a little bit, there is an important lesson there. And I'm still not, I'm still not quite at the there's nothing we can do era. But if you, for example, in technology, we see this all the time, you might find you're fixing one thing and then you realize that there's like a bug in this thing next to it or there's a performance optimization you could make. If you chased all of those leads, you would you would kill all your time and not get anything done. Yeah, you would never get anything done, yeah. But I'm the type of person maybe in the shop that uh, is, I don't do the nothing we can do. If something's not perfect, I have a tendency to uh, either work at it until it's perfect or throw it away. Yeah, I think that's the the difference because like when when you're building something for yourself, for you, I, I guess, is more valuable to do the thing than the actual result. Like when the thing is done, you you move on. Um, whereas like for him working that for a customer or for us like building the code, the product is what's important, not how we got there. Right. But that's like sort of related. Um, how do you learn the skills for operating all this machinery? Like, is it just YouTube? Do you find mentors? Did you ask this guy how to do it? Like, yeah, YouTube is very helpful. And I think like for some things, having someone that knows how to do that thing can be really helpful. So maybe uh, for the lathe, for example, the metalworking lathe, when I first got it, I had Kate's grandfather come uh, spend some time with me and teach me basic operation of the lathe. And it's a type of machine that if you're going to work with it, you really, you need to know kind of, where not to go, like what, you know, what not to do with it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that can be important because you might not catch that maybe in an intro YouTube video. Uh, but then beyond that, like for example, the truck, uh, I spend a lot of time on YouTube. I even spend a lot of time um, uh, in manuals or looking through different pieces of information. There's kind of different places you go for different pieces of information, but it's all driven by that same curiosity where you're just saying like, how can I do this thing? Right. Mm-hmm. It's like there are tools that I have in my garage that uh, that I bought because I looked at it like an engineer, like a software engineer. And I looked and I said, if I want to do this, I need the ability to do X, Y, Z. And then I kind of go backwards from there and I start Googling and saying, like, how can I do X, Y, Z? And then mm -hmm. a lot of times it turns out like there's uh, either a custom built tool or a technique that would get you that thing. And then you've got a new power. Right. Yeah. And did, did you have any mentors besides your uh, grandparents to like um, to do the the woodworking working thing, or was it just by yourself? Yeah, just by myself. It's just all like I I want to make this thing, and how can I make it? Mm. Yeah, 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 that's that's also like um, when when people ask me, uh, I guess it's related. Like when they want to learn uh, to how to program and all of that, just like when you have an, your own project to scratch your own niche, you're gonna find a way. You're just you're gonna be really pursuing it until you figure it out. Totally. I had a uh, I've 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 started a few uh, startups, and a lot of them come from that same thing where where you're working on something and all of a sudden you have this thing that doesn't exist, right? That's the best kind of startup is one that doesn't exist. So instead of inventing a problem, you find a problem. 
that's that's just the way to do it. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, yeah. I I agree. You also mentioned uh, in in passing that you like to climb. Um, is it just more like bouldering, or do you go like on proper climbs, uh, like long time, like uh, hiking? Yeah, I used to get into uh, top roping outdoors and and even bouldering outdoors. Mm -hmm. uh, and there, I think like I still like that, but I'm a little bit terrified of it. So I spend most of my time uh, bouldering either indoors or on. Uh, outdoor bouldering less than 15 feet mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. just because I don't need to get hurt. A lot of people will go, they do it, it's called highball climbing. So they'll, they'll start climbing and they'll go like, you know, all the way, Yeah, maybe like 30, 30 feet up and they'll say like, it's fine. I got it. It's like, <laughs> eh, I don't know about that. If you ever watch the, I'm sure people have seen the Alex Honnold stuff. I mean, I have massive respect for him as a climber. It's just like, it's startling that he's able to do the things that he does, but it's also, um, it is, in a, it's not i can't imagine that that's sustainable yeah no, yeah it's ir it's irresponsible right i mean it's it's just at one point it's not gonna go anymore like exactly yeah um, yeah but how do you manage to do all of this plus have a full-time job as a as a developer and have four kids like what's your what's your secret well uh probably my wife is <laughs> is the secret she's amazing uh she wants to Uh, to be there with the kids, which is amazing. Uh, she spends a lot of time with them and takes care of them all the time. And I, I think that it wouldn't be possible to do all the things that I do uh, without her backing me up. So thank you, Kate. <laughs> and uh, as far as the kids, um, we we find ways to spend uh, spend time together. We go on a, a trip to, to Italy, for example. Uh, we go on a trip to Italy every year. Uh, for the entire month of August. So that's like kind of our time to go off on our own and spend some time together and really just like leave the shop, leave the computers, leave all of that behind. Mm -hmm. uh, typically when we go, I can't take a full month off. So I'll take maybe two weeks off and I'll uh, take two weeks on, but working from Italy. Yeah. So every year we go to a, a different part and mm -hmm. it's really nice. And do your kids uh, share your enthusiasm for building things? Like, do they help you out uh, at all? They're getting into it more. They're getting the the older two are getting into programming a bit, uh, and the oldest one is always asking if I have like things that I need help with. Mm -hmm. And it always turns out that I I probably do. Like, I need someone to hold the other side of something, or I'm slowly trying to teach them. I have like a little setup in the garage where I've, uh, I've taken like a bunch of boards and I've put screws in one part and, and nails in another part. Uh, and I let them like, if they want to be out there in the shop with me, they can kind of go off and work on like their work, which mm -hmm. is kind of practicing basics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and you know, slowly we get more and more. I'll, I'll work on the planer, for example. Um, and I'll have my, my nine-year-old on the other end of the planer catching the boards and passing them back. So they, they're helpful. Uh, I think the same way that I was helpful for my grandfather, which is like helpful where needed and where it's responsible. Mm -hmm. And I do hope that like that, that they're getting the, the thing that I would like them to get out of this, which is that, um, that like there are no limits for what you can make, yeah, you know, yeah. like hopefully by making this leaning tower of Pisa for my daughter, that makes her in her mind think, Oh, like that's not unachievable. It's not unachievable to think of something and have it happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's one of the superpowers to even know, like, um, that some things are possible and i guess for me this is more like in a like area of software but for the majority of people like computer is this black box you open an app you do what the app tells you and you close the app um whereas for for us like we see the potential we know how to use it like we get raspberry pi and we like suddenly have thousands of ideas of what we can do with it or like stupid stuff but like fun stuff and i think um you go like even further because you also apply this in like uh, in in real life in uh, actual hardware right yeah i think a lot of people spend time trying to worry about like whether or not they're like in their lane or whatever or whether or not they uh you know are focusing on the right things or and it's just like if you're interested in something just go do it just go try it out you're probably going to learn some new things. And the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to buy maybe an old piece of machinery that you, you can just resell. There's not any risk involved in these things and they are accessible to everyone 
there are even these these maker spaces. I don't know. If, most major cities or most major areas mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. Uh, these maker spaces that you can go to that have a bunch of equipment that you can kind of go into um, and use all the equipment for like some hourly fee, mm-hmm. which is an amazing way to get started and not have to make a financial commitment to making things. Yeah. Plus you can probably find people who can like teach you how to do things. Yep. In those, in those areas. I think they have, a lot of them have training kind of associated with the space where you can take classes. Mm. It just don't, the amount of information available in software and in making uh, is amazing. Like you can search anything that you want to learn, anything you want to find out. You can go search and you can learn about it. You can read about it. A lot of times before I do something, I have, like, I've spent hours and hours watching and reading about how I'm going to do that thing. And it's almost to the point where when I finally am at the tool, like I'm so excited to take all the things that are in my <laughs> head and try try them out on this tool. And it's the same way with software. Like I'll uh, I'll spend a lot of time. Maybe I'm integrating with some. I guess a little bit different than software, right? Because in software, I'll often be trying the thing out as I'm learning. And I spend a lot of time in making kind of doing uh, advanced research. And I think it's because software allows you to get pretty far without putting any money. Yeah. Right? Things change when you have to go buy a tool. Yeah, not just money. I think in in general, there are no consequences for screwing up. Whereas in in real life, there can be consequences. Well, you can hurt yourself, for example. With software, it's almost impossible. I'd say like hurting yourself is definitely like people should be cautious about hurting themselves. But if someone's worried about like, I think a lot of times that's not what stops people from making things. What stops people from making things or from chasing some passion they have is saying like, I probably won't be good at it or it won't turn out right. Or, you know, professionals can do a better job. Let me just tell you, after working with a contractor for $125 a day, (laughs) a professional contractor is not going to care about your house as much as you're going to care about your house. So if there's some project that you need to get done, just try doing it yourself. The worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to you're going to spend a Saturday trying to do something. It's not going to work out, and then you can find a contractor to do the job they're going to do. But I'm just telling you, like how many times we've hired contractors on our house, or I worked with this contractor, and uh, they just they're not living in it. They don't own it, yeah. so they're going to do what they have to do to get out of there. Yeah, definitely. Just go, you know, go try something. Speaking about trying something and not being as good as professionals, you also make beer. I do. I do make beer. <laughs> when did that yeah. start? I'm definitely not as good as a professional. I've been making beer probably for about 12 years. Oh. Uh, at one point, I got pretty far into it. I have. Uh, I have a lot of equipment I have in my basement. Um, I actually have like a, a kegerator because at one point I had gotten sick of uh, of doing bottles and cleaning mm-hmm. bottles. Uh, mm-hmm. This is kind of like, this is an interesting topic is that the, like in beer making, I always noticed that the way that my process improved, the way that things got better was I would I would find the thing that was making me not want to do it the most. And I would go find a solution to that thing. So at, at one point, you know, you get tired of cleaning the bottles and maybe you're, I don't want to brew today because I have to go clean all those bottles and to put the, do the bottling part. It's like, oh, you can just get a keg and you can just put all the beer in the keg and then uh, you'll have this kegerator and uh, you can just serve the beer directly out of that. Mm-hmm. And like, it's a series of things like that. It's a series of things where you're saying, like, I don't want to transfer from a primary fermenter to a secondary fermenter. So I'm going to get this thing called a conical fermenter. And that will allow me to take the uh, the trub kind of off the bottom of the uh, of the fermenter without having to remove all the beer. Mm-hmm. Potentially introduce, like, some kind of, uh, you know, impurity into the beer by transferring it but what got you into beer that long ago because um well craft beer well, at least in in this area sort of became a thing like i don't know eight nine years ago maybe yeah i'd say that's pretty much pretty much the same for us and the the way it got started i think for a lot of people get started this way there was a uh, mr beer do you know mr beer no uh so mr beer was a uh it's a kit that they give you like a fermenter and they give you what's called an extract kit. And Mr. Beer's extract kit is like, it's like a canned beer. Uh, that, that can contains, uh, it's called, uh, normally they have LME, which is liquid malt extract. Mm -hmm. And so it's like half of the brewing process done for you sitting in this can. 
And really, all you have to do is add that to water. Right. Uh, okay. Create this boil, and then add hops to that, and you have a beer. And that's how a lot of people get started. That's how I got started. Uh, I did one of those one time, and then I was like, "Well, it's super annoying that like the beer, uh, you know." At one point, I think the fermenter like kind of uh, beer that came out the top because the fermentation happened and it bubbled out of the top of the thing. And I'm like, wait a second. Like there has to be like this, like professional brewers can't be out there with the beer all over the floor. Yeah. (laughs) So I start looking it up and then I say to myself, okay, what people have is they have this glass fermenter and on top they have what's called a three piece bubbler. And what it is, is uh, it is a, uh, like a valve that you can put on the top of a fermenter. Mm -hmm. And then it has some water inside of it and a cap so that the air can escape the fermenter, but is the water is essentially sealing the air that's on the inside from the outside air. So air can, air can go out because right, right. it bubbles up through the water, but it can't go back in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So little things like that, you know, and then you you kind of continue to buy and find and trade equipment and then eventually uh, you're you're doing the whole process. So it's really <laughs> find ways, and it's just in everything, like find ways to do the smallest piece and then just keep like land grabbing until you have a medium scale brewery in your basement. <laughs> I've even uh we we live in an area of New Jersey that is uh very into apples. So I uh in the right season uh Phil actually has your previous guest has come over at my house a few times we made cider. Oh yeah. Uh yeah. so we get into <laughs> other stuff too. Uh Yeah, he likes cider. <laughs> yeah, he likes cider a lot. Uh but having the equipment I think is the first step. Uh you know, like, no sorry, not having the equipment is the first step, but having the interest in it is the first step. Oh yeah, of course. Uh and then after that kind of comes like these these things that annoy you and it's just like in in software it's like well it annoys me that every time that i have to start a rails app that i have to like change the database from like sql to postgres and i have to do this whole thing in order to get it to work on whatever server and it's like find ways to get rid of that part the part that you don't like Mm. and then you'll make your job easier find ways to uh, make improvements in your editor so that if you want to change something in five places you can just do it once and it's like in the shop it would be something like find ways so that um, you don't have to spend seven hours sanding like you can buy all kinds of machines or you can uh, change your process in such a way that a lot of times you can make it so the wood comes out kind of pre-sanded or, mm-hmm. or mostly pre-sanded 90% mm-hmm. of the way there. Yeah. That's a, it's a perfect way to, to end the, <laughs> the, the show. <laughs> um, but, uh, I, I have, uh, three things that I, uh, always ask at, at, well, I have one thing that I always ask at the end and, and those are, um, what would be three things that uh, like you can recommend? So that so this would be like th- three things that made a lasting impression on on you or change your life. And this can be like books or articles or videos or like your grandfather or grandparents, like whatever. Okay, so definitely, if anyone has not heard of this person, uh, Jimmy Deresta is a a maker on the internet. Um, I. He he has a YouTube channel that's pretty successful, and I would say he does what he does really well is he does uh, multiple materials super well. So he's able to. Um, he used to be a, an instructor at NYU School of Design, and is very good at like taking a little bit of metalworking, a little bit of woodworking, a little bit of like lathe work, maybe some brass, maybe some blacksmithing, and he like puts it all together into these pieces, which are mostly these like brand engagements that he does. But if you're interested in anything that I've said about making, mm-hmm. please just go watch one of his videos. They, I could spend all day watching them. <laughs> he has some that he does voiceovers on and some that are just kind of like sped up making sequences. You can learn a lot just by watching the ways that he does things. Uh, he's very, very good. Um, and then uh, I think, I don't know why this is my recommendation, but if anyone hasn't read The Da Vinci Code, just go read it. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's really good. It's a really good uh, book. Um, and then let me think of, I have to have a third thing. Uh, the third thing probably I would, I would give uh, to my grandfather and to my father. So my grandfather in the shop and then my father kind of like at the origin of me programming computers. Uh, at one point he had brought home a computer and he sat the computer down and he he typed in some code that was basically like, like 10 print John 
and then 20 go to 10. <laughs> uh, and at, this was at the point where I don't either he didn't know what an interrupt was or he didn't know the key command or something. Uh, but like he's like, and now the computer's frozen. <laughs> and, and I was like, so you're telling me that this computer is just going to do what you told it to do forever? even if that means that we have to literally turn it off to stop it. And he's like, yes. And that's, that was the origin of me programming computers. So uh, those two people definitely um, made huge impacts on my computers life. Computers are dumb. <laughs> computers are very dumb. <laughs> well, uh, thank you. Thank you so much, John. This was, uh, this was amazing. Thank you for having me. Oh, like with my pleasure. Uh, I could talk about this stuff all day. I really, I appreciate the opportunity to be on the show again. So thank you. Yeah, no, like, my pleasure. Thanks again, and uh, goodbye. Goodbye. All right, this is my interview with John. I would love if you would share this podcast with your friends and followings on your social mediums of choice. Retweet, like, repost, whatever. Every action helps. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, please post a review there. And if you use a different app like Breaker, Overcast, or anything else that supports liking or favoriting, I'd appreciate your action there as well. You can also financially support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash parpasspot. That's patreon.com slash P-A-R-P-A-S-P-O-D or open the show notes and follow the Patreon link there. Thank you. You can find the show on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. We are at parpasspot on all of them. All the links from this episode are in the show notes and on our website parallelpassion.com slash 36. Thank you for listening and have a passionate day.